coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. Every chain will break as broken hearts declare His praise. Oh, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is a lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is a lamb, the lamb that was slain. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him. So open up the gate, make way before the King of Kings. The God who comes to save is here to set the captives free for who can stop the lord almighty our god is a lion the lion of judah he's roaring in power and fighting our battles and every knee will bow before him our god is a lamb the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world his blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before him Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? 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 Oh, who can stop the Lord? Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him.
welcome you today. Glad that you are here on this beautiful Lord's Day to come together and worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us here today, know that we're delighted that you're taking time to be with us today. We'd love for you to tear off the side of the bulletin, fill out your information there, and drop that in the offering plate. Let that be your offering to us here at Northside today. Right now, we're going to take a moment to greet each other. If you see someone you don't recognize, go say good morning, and we'll continue worshiping together here in just a moment. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Savior. He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me. All my fears and failures And fill my life again I give my life to follow Everything I believe in Now I surrender Yes, I surrender Savior, He can move the mountains my God is mighty to save, He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave, Jesus conquered the grave, so shine your light and let the whole world see, we're singing for the glory of the risen King, Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world see, we're singing for the glory of the risen King, He's my Savior, He can move the mountains, my God is mighty to save, 
He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave, Savior. He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save and forever. Author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. sins and my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone singing how marvelous singing how marvelous how wonderful and my soul shall
our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Wrapped it on the rolling tide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Help to sinners far and wide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing ye islands of the sea. Echo back the ocean caves. Earth shall keep her jubilee. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing above the battle strife. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. By his death and endless life. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing it softly through the gloom. When the hearts for mercy craves, sing and cry for the tomb. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Shout salvation full and free. Highest hills and deepest caves, this our song of victory. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Go to the Lord in prayer with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for letting us come here to church together. Please let us all have a safe trip home. Amen.
Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, got a question for you. What uh, What is the greatest commandment? Anybody, anybody have to come across that question? According to the Bible, what is our greatest commandment? What's the greatest thing we're supposed to do? Anybody know? Somebody asked Jesus this one time. Do you know? Read the Bible? Well, that, that's, that's close. Not, not quite, you know? Obey your mother and father? No, it's not quite there, but that's, that's close. Yes? Mm, now, you're, now we're getting closer. Now we're getting closer. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said the, the second one is, is a lot like it. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay? And so, uh, really... Really, the greatest commandment is all about love. It's all about love. Jesus said, if, you, if you're going to do anything, I want you to, I want you to love God and, and love people. So, here's a good question. What is love? What is love? Anybody know? You know? I want to hear. Uh, I don't know. You don't know? Okay. But come around here so we can, so we can hear. What is love? <laughs> you don't know? Well, let me ask you this. If we can't say what it is, do you know it when you see it? Or when you do you, do you know that you're loved? Do you know? Are there people that love you? Yes? Okay. Are there people that you love? You love other people? All right. So at least we got that understanding, okay? Well, well, listen, trying to define love is, is really kind of a hard thing. I mean, people write songs about it all the time. And uh, sometimes they get close and sometimes they're so far away. And sometimes people say things like, uh, this, this thing is between us is just bigger than the both of us. And I don't have any idea what that means. Um, you, you know what love is? What? To love Jesus. To love Jesus? Okay, well, there you go. We can, we can love Jesus. Well, listen, um, it's hard for us to define what love is. Now, the Bible does a good job. It says this is, what we, this, this is how we know what love is, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and that we love God because he first loved us. The Bible talks about love a lot. But I wanted to give you just, just five things here, the way that we can show people that we love them, okay? We can show other people that we love them. The first one, the first one is we can tell them. How do you tell somebody that you love them? What do you say? I love you. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good way to start right there. I love you. Tell people, I love you. And so that's one thing we can do is we can, we can tell people and we can say good things about them. So, so there's one. We say things. Hold on just a minute, okay? So we, we can tell people that we love them. Another way that we can show love is we can give them things. Any of you like to receive gifts? Anybody? All right, there's two of them. So for their birthdays next year, parents, hey, they don't want gifts on your birthday, right? You want gifts on your birthday? You like to have gifts on your birthday or Christmas? You, you enjoy gifts? Yeah, we, we do. So when people give us gifts, we think, oh, that's, that's a way to show people that, that, that we love them by giving them gifts. So we can, we can tell them, we can give them gifts, and I'm going to have to quickly go through the rest of these. We can do things for them. We can, we can serve them. Uh, we can, you know what we can do to, to show we love our parents? We can do those chores around the house. We can clean up our rooms, okay? We can, we can uh, clean up after, after dinner. We can clean up our, our place at, at the table. We can do things, all right? So we, we can tell them. We can uh, 
give them gifts. We can do things for them. We can spend time with them. Uh, I know that at, around my house, uh, the kids, they love to say, hey, are we, getting the, are we going to go see Nana and Papa? Because they love Nana and Papa, and they want to spend time with Nana and Papa. So they spend time. We can spend time with each other, okay? And then, um, ooh, I just lost it. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, thanks. And so it, it's... it's uh, Around our house again, especially uh, Hannah, way down there, this is weird that you're way far away because uh, uh, touch is a good thing for you. You love to give hugs, and so giving people hugs, that's another way we can tell them that we love them. So there's a lot of different ways we can show people that we love them. Look at there. See, that's a great example right there. Wow. Look. Hey, it worked. Um, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't have a little box here talking to us, but, but it worked. Thank you for that illustration. Um, we can tell people we love them. We can show them that we love them by doing things for them. We can give them gifts. Okay, we can we can hug them. And uh, it, it's there's a lot of different ways to tell people that we love each other. And that's something we ought to do. We love God and we love other people. And let's never forget that. Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for uh, these children who are here today. Lord, I pray that each and every one of them know that they are loved and that we show them in many ways how they are loved. And God, help us to love each other as well and to love, love you most of all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of life who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Please remain standing as we share God's word together this morning from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. You guys were expecting Ephesians. Revelation chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through verse 7. Revelation, listen to those pages turn. Y'all hadn't had to turn pages in a year. <laughs> it's at the end. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, but you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it instructs and teaches us, Lord. Thank you for the way that it's put together, Lord, that we can talk about a letter for a year to a church in Ephesus, and we can come to the end of the Bible and find that that church is alive and well and is is being dealt with by the Lord. So we thank you for that, God. Would you move in us and move in our hearts now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. BJ, there's a reason preachers started going with three-point sermons. So that they, so they remember it easier, right? And I don't know if you guys caught it, but our music minister had another Roll Tide song in the, uh, in the order of service today. <laughs> Folks, that's twice in a row. Uh, his grandson plays at Georgia, and he's singing Roll Tide songs. Uh, so, <laughs> oh boy. Well, we are bringing a 52-week study to the book of Ephesians to a close today. We began the first Sunday in January last year, and we are ending it today. Next week, we begin our journey through the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You may remember last January, we began in the book of Acts, actually preparing ourselves to talk about the letter to the church at Ephesus. We look closely at Paul's two-year ministry that he had there in Ephesus. And of course, Paul, during that time, built a tremendous relationship with the church there. And that relationship, you have to know that the relationship Paul established during that two years helped to shape him as a pastor, helped to shape the definition and the direction of his future ministry. And you see that when you read through the book of Acts, you won't find a church that has a greater relationship with the Apostle Paul other than the church at Ephesus. No other church really has that connection with Paul that the church at Ephesus had. But over the course of time, the demands of his ministry, the compulsion of his call, led Paul away from the city of Ephesus. And in the timeline of Paul's life, it appears that the letter to the church at Ephesus was penned while he was under arrest, which is detailed at the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28. But this letter that Paul wrote is the letter we've been looking at for so long, is not the only letter that names the church at Ephesus as a recipient. Though many may not think of it as a letter, the last book of our Bible is in fact a letter. Now it's a letter that we struggle to understand. It's a letter that that we, uh, we, we think about a lot and we wonder what the playing out of that letter will one day look like. But it is in fact a letter. It was addressed in fact to seven churches. And the, the church at Ephesus made the, the top of that list. And the letter, of course, at the end of the Bible wasn't written by Paul, but it was written by John, at least in a sense. It's important to understand that there is a little bit of a difference between 
the letter to the, uh, to the churches in Revelation and the letter that Paul wrote uh, in Ephesians. And, and really the, the difference comes down to, to this. Now, I will say this. We affirm this is a big, big theological dictionary word, verbal plenary inspiration. What does this mean? This means from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired. That means that every word that we have in our Bible is breathed by God. That word inspired literally means breathed out by God. It's a, it's a word that Paul made up to describe exactly how the scriptures work. They are, they are absolutely, inerrantly inspired by God. But we do get the sense when we read the letter to the church at Ephesus that Paul wrote, that Paul is, Paul is writing from his heart. Uh, he is, he, you can picture the Apostle Paul sitting down and writing from the overflow of his heart as he reflects fondly on the congregation. And what I love about this is how when God moves in a man's heart to write these letters, that, that God is working in his heart and God is working in that pen so that the words that Paul is putting down on paper are, in fact, the very inspired word of God. But there is a little bit of a difference when you read the introduction to the letters to the churches that, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. You almost get the sense that Jesus is dictating the words. Did you catch it how it begins? To the, to the angel, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, write these words. And so John is actually receiving dictated language from the Lord that is recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And so the book of Revelation is, is, is a little bit different in that we get the sense of dictation. So is the book of Ephesians the absolute word of God? Certainly, absolutely. So what exactly does Jesus say through John? What does he have to say to the church at Ephesus? Well, I want to conclude this series by looking at Jesus' commendations of the church at Ephesus, particularly his criticism of the church at Ephesus, so that we can gain some wisdom in our contemporary culture today. The first thing that we see that Jesus says about the church at Ephesus, we find in verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. This is language of hard work. Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus. He is speaking through John to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He says, tell the congregation, I know and see your hard work, your toil, your endurance. Now, and we don't know what all the church at Ephesus was involved in doing. Uh, we have no idea what the scope of the ministry of the church at Ephesus looked like. But we do know they had some stellar leadership during their time. You won't find a church in the New Testament that had a better, a better slate of leadership than the church at Ephesus. I mean, they had Paul as their pastor. They had Timothy as their pastor. They had the apostle John as their pastor. And so the church at Ephesus had some, they had some hosses in the pulpit. Uh, during their time. And so this church had tremendous leadership during their time. Now for us today, our churches are so driven by programs, right? Our, our churches are driven, well, you've got Awana and you've got this and you've got that. We've got Upward getting started. By the way, a good segue, uh, there's going to be some work going on in the Upward field this afternoon. If you'd like to help, Daniel would love for you to come out and help him this afternoon get some work done on our Upward field. We're used to these kind of programs. This is how we define ministry. Well, what does your program look like? What are you doing? What ministry are you engaging in? Now, I don't have a clue what the church at Ephesus did for their programs. I don't know that they had programs. They didn't have a publisher to order the, the latest and greatest kids' ministry from. But we do kind of get a sense of some of the things that they were doing. And it may sound kind of boring to us today, but for instance, Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, it says Paul spent some of his time in Ephesus engaging in debates. And so 
the church at Ephesus, one of their ministries was getting folks together and contending for the Christian faith in front of folks. That sounds exciting to me. I'd love to hear, you know, the Apostle Paul going, you know, nine rounds with some pagan in Ephesus and, and, and laying down, you know, the, the truth with him. That, that's exciting to me. I'd love to hear that kind of debate, that vigorous conversation taking place. I don't know if fly well today, but I would love to hear that. It says, uh, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, uh, the Acts chapter 19 says they were speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Paul took his folks and left took the disciples with him, and they daily spent their time reasoning in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It says in verse 10 of Acts 19, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So they may not have had a, a, a team kit or a children's program or a WANA or an upward program, but it says that everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what they were doing. They were working hard contending for the faith. There was the gospel being proclaimed. And so even though they may not have had things like we have today, the fact of the matter is is that there was hard work taking place. And though the the scriptures don't speak of these kind of programs or this kind of ministry or or their, their worship ministry and their vibrant, talented musicians, Jesus tells us in the end that they worked hard. They, they, they contended for the faith. They toiled. They endured. They were patient. It was a church known for its hard work. Whatever platform they used to share the gospel, they were committed to doing it well. The other thing to remember is that though this letter in Revelation is written to the pastors of the churches, the letter is for the entire congregation. It isn't that the pastor or the elders of the church are the ones who did the hard work. The entire congregation did. If you read this, it's a letter to the churches. If you remember from Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul defines one of the primary tasks of, of the ordained ministry is not to do ministry, but equip others to do ministry. And so the, it's a sense that the entire church is engaged in this type of hard work. So a hardworking church is not made because the pastor, the deacons, the staff, the elders work hard. They ought to be. Uh, those who are in ministry should be working hard. A hardworking church is defined when everyone takes ownership of the church's calling. What's the church's great calling? Make disciples. Who's responsible for that? We are. We are. That's our job. That's our task. If, if we're going to work hard at something, we ought to be working hard at making disciples because that's our A, number one primary responsibility is making disciples. Everything we do needs to be going towards that goal. But you know what I've found? Even lazy people want to be part of something that's described as being hardworking. Right? I mean, even lazy people want to be part of something good. Even people who don't want to work hard want to be part of something that's, that's defined as being hardworking. What an honor for the church at Ephesus, though, for Jesus to say that they're a hardworking church. What an honor. I would hope that if Jesus were to write us a letter that he would look at us and say, we, we work hard. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an affirmation. I would, that's a plaque I'd hang on the wall, right? Jesus said, we work hard. Uh, gladly. Thank you, sir. But secondly, we see another commendation. He says in the second part of verse 2, he says, How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. The church at Ephesus, Jesus says, they are committed to sound doctrine and right teaching. Another incredible affirmation of the church at Ephesus is this commitment to sound doctrine and sound teaching and their willingness to expose false teachers. 
Every church in the New Testament was at risk of falling for false teachers. That's why it's described so much. If you read through the New Testament as a whole, you'll find that this is a primary concern for the New Testament writers. It's guarding against false teaching, guarding against, against those influences. In the church at Ephesus, Jesus commends them for they are, they are on the ball with this. There's no false teachers creeping into Ephesus. There's no pagans that are coming in and trying to pervert the gospel. These folks are, these folks are on the ball when it comes to sound teaching and right doctrine. Now remember, it's hard to secure stability when you're in a time prior to the finalization of the scripture that we have. The church at Ephesus didn't have the New Testament like we have it. They had letters that were shared between churches, and so it was hard to, to make sure things were stable, to make sure that doctrine was sound. It, we are blessed, folks, that, that if somebody stands up and says something goofy, guess what you have the wonderful privilege of doing? Opening your Bible and seeing that what they said is bogus or not. When these people on TV stand up and try this false teaching and this false doctrine, you don't have to be following them like sheep, just, bah, you know, feed me some more. You can open your Bible and say, that is not what the Lord says. That is not what the Scripture says. That is not what God declares. That is not what He has taught us. The church at Ephesus was committed to this. They did a better job of, of many of these other churches of sniffing them out. Perhaps it's a credit to the leadership. Maybe it's due to the fact that Paul said, I'm getting my folks and getting out of here, and we're going over to Tyrannus's place, and we're going to have debates for the whole time I'm here. You know, we don't know why they, they developed such a, such a reputation of sniffing out false teaching. But when you, when you go back and read, Paul never really gets there with them to say, hey guys, watch out for this heresy or this false teaching. You never see that with the church at Ephesus. The book of Galatians is almost all about guarding against false teaching. But the letter to the church at Ephesus, it's, it's, it's minor, if, it's, if, you could, if you want to say it's there at all. It's minor. And so they are excellent at this, and Jesus commends them for this. They have, they have guarded themselves against false teaching, and Jesus commands or commends them for this. Folks, this is an area where we are facing a mighty struggle in the kingdom of God today. This is an area where there is a great struggle for us today. Now, this stands as no surprise. As a matter of fact, Paul actually told Timothy, while Timothy was serving as the elder, the pastor there at Ephesus, uh, he said in, that there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul actually told Timothy, get ready, there's coming a day where people are just going to have teachers that they want for themselves. And they're not going to endure sound teaching or, or sound, sound doctrine. Now, I certainly think that every generation... Every generation has had its own fair share of people with itching ears. I think every generation has, has had to deal with this in some way or another. But I can't imagine that there was a time in history where there was more nauseatingly bad alternatives to biblical orthodox Christianity than there are today. There are more options on the table, and they are widely available to anyone who is interested. And it's not that there's just lots of bad options. The means of propagating those options are vast. They're vast. The printing press absolutely revolutionized the church. 
You go back 500 years and think about how the printing press absolutely revolutionized the church because it put a copy of the Bible in the hands of anybody that could read. Suddenly, literacy rates began to rise. People began to actually read the Bible for the very first time. And that printing press helped to fuel the fires of the Reformation that we, we celebrate to this day. We just recently had the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But guess what? Today, everybody's a publisher. Everybody in the room's a publisher. You don't have to go through the process of, of setting up a, a template to print on an old-fashioned printing press. You can publish right here, right now, under the sound of my voice. You can use the church's Wi-Fi to be a publisher right now if you want to. How? Well, you've got these wonderful things called blogs and social media, and, and Twitter now lets you be twice the publisher that you once were. Everybody's a publisher. I was looking through my Facebook list. I, 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 I feel, I almost had a, had a little pity party when I was looking through my Facebook list. I got like 300 and something friends. Now, they're not all friends. Let's be clear. These are people who I have connected in some way with or another. But I got like 300 and something friends. Now, I don't seek them out, okay? I'm not just, some of y'all are, 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 are crazy when it comes to clicking on these Facebook things. Like, ooh, I went to high school with your mama's brother's cousin's friend. Will you be my friend on Facebook? I have a friend who had 4,500 friends on Facebook. And I think, he's got access to a lot of people, if they're actually paying attention. They're not. It's passive. No one's paying that close attention. Everyone's a publisher. But not just in print, though. Our church is broadcasting right now over the world wide web. The interwebs are being set ablaze by Northside Baptist Church right now. We have seen over the course of doing this that our worship service has been watched in Russia, Moscow. It's been watched in Germany. It's been watched in New Zealand. Hey, Jeremy and Ginger, good to see you guys. It's even been watched in the, the liberal wasteland of California. And that's verifiable through the courtesy of IP addresses. Here's the thing. Northside Baptist Church, we are firmly committed to sound doctrine and sound teaching. What if we weren't? What if we weren't? It costs us $15 a month to broadcast over the Internet. And we hope to always be broadcasting truth. But what if we weren't? What if we weren't? What if there was heresy being broadcast into Moscow or into Germany or into New Zealand? We are in strange times today, folks. And it is widely available if you want it. Jesus gives them one more commendation, though. He says that they persevere. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This third commendation is the fact that the church at Ephesus has endured some persecution, whatever form it has arrived in. We don't know the extent of the persecution at this time, but we know they endured. You know, there are churches today in very dark corners of the world who would be shocked to see us meeting in public without fear of, of, of injury or harm or persecution or prosecution 
with doors open with an advertisement on the side of the road that says this is a church, you are welcome here. There are places in the world where they would be shocked to see us worshiping in the openness of our country. I hope and pray that if it ever becomes illegal to follow Jesus here, that we would follow Jesus all the more boldly. The church at Ephesus is commended for that. But with all that's right, this, is, this would make a good plaque, right? Retirement plaque. You worked hard. You stood up for sound doctrine and you endured persecution. That'd go well on a plaque for anybody. Hang it on the wall. Celebrate that. This is what Jesus said about my church. Praise the Lord. But Jesus has a critique. You know, if I found a church that had this criteria, I could sit in those proverbial pews all day long. And enjoy being a part. But these are Jesus' affirmations. It's not the pastor's rose-colored glasses of the church. He's not sitting down thinking all the good things that his church does. These are what Jesus is saying. But they got something wrong. They got something wrong. And so Jesus offers a criticism of the church at Ephesus. He says, I have this against you. What a devastating phrase. Let the weight of that phrase just settle there. Uh, It's, you're doing these things amazing. You are fantastic. You are great. But I have this against you. Lord, you didn't give us a chance to have the good news versus the bad news. You didn't let us, you know, take the bad news first. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Well, we saw something of that first love when we read through in the book of Acts about this church at Ephesus. How they supported Paul and cared for Paul and this, this brotherhood that existed there in the church at Ephesus. So, so we saw something of that. But they've abandoned now the love that they had at first. And Jesus says, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. What does that mean? You know, it's hard to define love. The kids couldn't do it. We can show love, but it's hard to define. So what does it mean to abandon that first love? Here's a church that was defending doctrine, working hard, enduring persecution. But Jesus says their love had grown cold. This is a very important church. We need to understand That when our zeal for Jesus cools, then the expression of our faith becomes more about the mechanics and less about the majesty. When our zeal for Christ cools, then the expression of our faith becomes more about the mechanics and less about the majesty. When our zeal for the Lord diminishes, then so also does some other things. For instance, our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be a church that works hard, that contends for sound doctrine, that endures persecution, but if your love and zeal for Jesus is not preeminent, then it begins to show up in other places, like my love and my zeal for my brothers and sisters in Christ, like my love and my zeal for service, like my love and my zeal for doing the things of God. Here's the thing, you can have a busy church with a full calendar, 
But if the motivation behind what we are doing is not a love of Jesus and a pursuit of holiness, then what is it that is motivating us? There are a few things that the Lord makes abundantly clear in his word. And one of those things that is abundantly clear, both the Old and the New Testament, is that God absolutely hates empty religion. God absolutely hates empty religion. One of his greatest indictments of the nation of Israel was their legalistic and lifeless religion that was so often their expression of faith. Jesus, or the Lord frequently told them through the prophets, I don't want your sacrifices, I don't want your worship, I don't want these things. Because they are not from a right heart. They are not motivated out of love and zeal. They are motivated out of religion and cold, dead works. And God says, I don't want empty religion. When Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, something that he made a sport of. The Jewish leaders of that day, they were masters of the mechanics of their religion. They had their their religious expression mapped out. They knew how they could get right up to violating the law and stop just before they did. They would go on a journey so far before the Sabbath so they could come all the way home on the Sabbath and not violate the law. Jesus mocked them because they were so faithful at tithing. You hear a pastor say that often? You're tithing too correctly. Your 10% don't matter if your heart's cold to the Lord. You can 10% all day long. But if that 10% is not motivated out of a love for Jesus, why is it motivated from? God makes abundantly clear over and over again that he hates dead and empty religion. And Jesus mocked those religious leaders because they were so faithful at keeping their religion, but they couldn't see the fact that the Son of Man was standing in their midst. They missed the hope of everything that they had built their faith on. Because they were so driven to keep the mechanics. And they missed the man that was there in front of them. There is a caution for our church today. We are blessed to be a church that I think is a lot like the church at Ephesus. We work hard. I've watched folks here give hours of their time, sweat from their brow, blood from their veins, literally... I've watched it. Our calendar is absolutely full. I asked our elders and deacons a couple of months ago to begin to identify some of the strengths of our church and some of the weaknesses of our church. And one of the things that kind of rose to the top of that conversation is one of our weaknesses is our calendar. Don't believe me? Call Kim Tuesday morning and ask her that you tell her you'd like to schedule something. And you will find that you got to make some plans pretty far in advance to get on that church calendar because that church calendar is full all the time. I drove by here Friday evening, and there was somebody up here working Friday night, cleaning something, doing something. I didn't even come up and see what they were doing. I hope it was good. <laughs> Steve, is all the sound equipment back there this morning? If you're one of those folks that are involved in a lot of things and you know what it's like to have a meeting this afternoon, to have to teach in a one class this evening, you come to a men's ministry breakfast on Sunday morning, at some point in time you have to work on taking care of the things that you've got to take care of at home, you know what that's like. 
You know what it's like that I've got this meeting on this night and I've got to be here for this night. You know what that's like. And some of us, that's exciting to be busy, to have a full calendar. That's exciting. I, I think our church is committed to sound doctrine. I've been here 12 years, and I'm thankful that our church has never had a church conflict regarding false teaching. I don't even want to say that out loud because I don't want to invite it. You know, Satan show up. Well, I'll show you. That's so exciting. We are committed to sound doctrine and sound teaching. That, that's, that's thrilling for me. And although we've not endured persecution on the scale of our brothers and sisters overseas, the, threatening to take a tax-exempt status or whatever, that's not persecution, folks. When there's a gun involved and telling you can't come to church, that's persecution. I would hope that if it ever happened that we would stand firm and endure. But let us heed the warning given to the church at Ephesus and not forget our motive. We do what we do because of who Jesus is. We work hard because of who Jesus is. Everything that we do from our worship to all the various ways that there are to serve, we do so not because those things are ends unto themselves. We do so because of who Jesus is. This means that we have to ask ourselves some very tough questions. And all those questions involve a three-letter word. That word is why. You ever ask that question? That's a hard question to ask. Teacher, why do you teach? Why? We've got great Sunday school teachers. Why did you get a lesson ready really early in the week and perfect it over the course of the week so that Sunday morning it was, it was well thought out and prepared to give to your class? That's, that's how it always works, right? Why? Why would you do that? Coach, some of you guys are getting your playbooks ready for upward. You've got that... Uh, Got that no-huddle offense you're ready to drop on the first and second graders? Why do you coach? Musician, why do you play? Why? Why do you, why do you get up on Sunday morning, come up here on stage, and, and play your instrument? Why? Vocalist, why do you sing? Why do you... Come to practice on Wednesday night for the choir and then come up and be part of that ministry on Sunday morning. Why? Preacher? Why do you preach? Why? Why pour over things like this and, and get it ready for presentation? Why? Greeter, why do you greet? Why do you stand at the door with a smiling face and, and make sure everyone that comes in feels welcome? Technician? Why do you do technical things? Why? Why, why? why do you want all the eyes when the sound system squeals to turn around and look at you? Why do you want people to get un a little nervous when the slide doesn't change just as quickly as it should? Why? Why do you do that? There's a lot of people who would answer those questions. They teach because they love children. They, they 
sing because they love singing. They play instruments because they absolutely are thrilled to play their instrument. I get it. I, I enjoy preaching. I enjoy it. Can I say this, though? Our enjoyment of those things is not sufficient motivation for our doing those things. I may love coaching, but if I'm going to stand up and say I coach for the kingdom of God, then my motivation for coaching in the kingdom of God is because of who Jesus is. I don't want to be guilty of empty religion. I don't want to be guilty of doing it because it has to be done. I don't want to be guilty of preparing a sermon because I have to prepare a sermon. Because Sunday's right around the corner and I have to be ready. I don't want to do that. I want to do it because I serve a great and mighty Savior who loves me enough to pay the penalty for my sins to call me and gift me and equip me for ministry in his kingdom. I want to do it for Jesus. See, what's, what happens when we begin to think that way? When our motivation is not the thing, but the one who compels us to the thing? It begins to change. And it suddenly becomes not so much an obligation, but something we delight in. Something that we enjoy sharing. Something we enjoy being a part of something we enjoy doing together. Remember this, busy calendars do not save us. Your busy calendar will not get you into heaven. You can't show Jesus your, your day timer, but Jesus is probably looking at iPhone calendars now or something and say, look how busy this was. Does this not count for something? It doesn't. Now, Christians ought to be busy. Christians should be some of the busiest people on the planet because the Bible does condemn idle hands, right? We're not supposed to have idle hands. We ought to be busy, but our busyness should be for the right reason. Not that our love has grown cold. So this morning I would ask you to hold up a mirror and ask yourself one of the hardest questions that you can ask. Why? Why are you here this morning? Why? You ever ask that question on Sunday morning, fighting with the kids on the way to church, trying to get everybody dressed here on time? Why do you do that? Is it not easier to stay home? Why? Why, why are you connected in serving in some way? Is it because you passed the pulse test? You know what that is, right? If you have one, we have a job for you. Sometimes it doesn't matter how fast it is. Ask yourself this question, why do you avoid connecting and serving? There's some who come to church and they never do anything. Why? For many of us, we'd say our first motive might not be because of our love for Jesus, but because of our obligation or because of our enjoyment in the thing that we do. But let us heed the wisdom of the book of Revelation and be mindful of our love that it might not grow cold. I want to share with you two bits of good news before we finish. The first one is this. 
Remember Paul at the end of his letter, we were there for a long time. At the end of his letter, he says that we have something incredible. He, he uses the term an incorruptible love. Talking about the love that we have for the Lord, that it's an incorruptible love. That's a, that's a powerful word. Now, what does that word incorruptible mean? It doesn't mean like, you know, the, the, the stuff that sits outside. You know, if you leave furniture outside, the lawn furniture, leave your grill sitting outside, over time that stuff, what happens to it? It begins to corrupt, decay, and fall apart. doesn't matter. It's what the sun does to it. It just falls apart. That's not what this word means. What this word incorruptible means, it actually refers to the, the quality or the criteria of, of how that love is expressed. Uh, so it's, it's incorruptible. It doesn't mean that it doesn't fluctuate because we fluctuate. This isn't God's love for us. This is our love for him. But it's defined as being incorruptible. This means that if you're in Christ, you may go through times and seasons where you're not feeling it quite like you wish you were. But the great news is, is that there is an incorruptible love inside of you because Jesus Christ has adopted you through his blood. And this is a blessing that we have. We have this incorruptible love. So I've got good news for you. If you're in this kind of weird place in your life where you're not feeling it, just understand that within you there is an incorruptible love that is, that is there with your, as you express that to the Lord. But secondly, is I love the fact that Jesus looks at this church at Ephesus and he says, you guys have lost your love, and he doesn't throw a thunderbolt down and zaps them and says, now what? Instead, what does he do? Repent. Repent. There's a word that's not very popular today. Because you know what repentance is? Repentance is, it's my fault. I'm responsible. It's my sin. And the world today doesn't like ownership of that. It's much easier to blame you. It's much easier to blame this situation. It's much easier to blame my crazy schedule. When in reality... Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus, and I think he looks at us as well. Repent. Remember the zeal of when you first believed. Think about that. There was a time in your life, if you're a Christian, where you believed for the very first time. I remember that was pretty exciting. <laughs> Almost thrilling. I, I could use the word exhilarating to describe that time in my life. Where, where I knew that I had been forgiven, where Jesus was my Savior, where I had been washed in the blood, declared innocent through the blood of Jesus. What an amazing time! Wouldn't you love to go back there? Like, I'd like to go back there, but bring all the knowledge that I've gained since then. Like, if I could take everything that I've got from here and go back to there, that'd be pretty awesome. Well, guess what? That's what Jesus wants us to do. <laughs> Go back there. Remember the zeal from when you first believed and do all the stuff that you do today with that kind of zeal. Take the knowledge that you have today from the discipleship that you've hopefully enjoyed. Take all that back with you. And go back to that day and that time when you first believed and put all of that knowledge and all of that discipleship to work and deploy that and, and make a difference for the kingdom of God. 
We serve the Lord with gladness. We cherish Him with this love that's incorruptible. And we put that to work in the church. Man, you work hard. You contend for sound doctrine. You endure persecution. And you love Jesus with a love incorruptible. That plaque looks a little bit better, doesn't it? Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we rejoice today in the fact that repentance is available. Lord, I, I admit, as the chief of sinners in this, that it is easy to go through the motions. It is easy to get caught up in the mechanics. It is easy to go through the week and take care of all the things that have to be taken care of because they have to be taken care of and to forget, oh Lord, to forget that there is a reason behind all of this. And His name is Jesus. Lord, how many of us are in the place where we have to get our Sunday school class ready, we have to get the, the children's church lesson prepared, we've got to get our lesson for, for upward ready, we've got to get all these things done, and, and there's just not enough time because I've got to work a nine to five, whatever that is. And just to forget the majesty and holiness of Jesus who calls us to these things. there's a lot of us that are really busy in the kitchen but we never stop and take time to just sit at the feet of Jesus the kitchen's got to be cleaned but it sure is much more fun to clean the kitchen when we know the Savior who calls us to do it God, I know that in this room there are those who are not in Christ at all. and There's no compulsion to do anything other than making themselves feel good. And so, God, I pray that today that they might understand that there is a Savior who loves them and wants a relationship with them and wants to take the things that they do and revolutionize them and do great and mighty things with them in the kingdom of God. I pray, God, today that you'd move in the hearts of those in this room that are lost today, that are far away from you, bring them to salvation today. God, I pray that we corporately and individually would repent from our full calendar and seek and serve and love Jesus. Now that may mean our calendar gets fuller, but it's full to the glory of God and not to the glory of me. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May it work in our hearts now today as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together and have a time of invitation. If you'd like to come and pray, you're welcome to. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity during this time of invitation to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You can come down say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ today. And you can make that decision today, here and now in this place, and let your life be started over and made brand new today.
Let's stand together and sing and respond as the Lord would lead. Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Worship Jesus today, amen? A uh, couple of real quick announcements. We do have more of the, uh, the, the uh, guidebooks for you, so if you are doing the year Bible reading program, we do have more of those guidebooks available at the Welcome Center. You can pick one of those up if you didn't get one last week because we ran out. What a problem to have, running out of Bible study books for people to read the Bible. That's a terrible problem. Uh, but we've got more of them if you'd like to pick one up. Uh, when you leave today. Also, don't forget our adult discipleship begins tonight at 6 o'clock. We'll, uh, we'll be meeting, uh, one group will be in here, one group will be in the conference room. Uh, there are still spaces there, so if you want to be part of those, you need to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, Kevin Ingram, do you mind dismissing us in prayer, please? Thank you, sir.